Hello, it's Tuesday, KJSU Stanford. This is the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molyneux. I'm joined by co-host Jacob Swartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schockenbach Foundation. Our show is dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed are issues ranging from AI, automation, a UBI to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Today, we have Professor Jack Miller. He served as a dean of the College of Law from 1995 to 2002. He's an accomplished tax scholar who's authored more than a dozen law review articles. He's a co-author of a case book, The Fundamentals of Federal Taxation. He holds law degrees from the University of Kentucky and University of Florida. He has taught at six law schools, including William & Mary, University of Florida, and the University of Western Australia. At the University of Idaho, he has received many awards for his teaching. His service to the legal profession and to legal education is wide-ranging, and has included long-term service as an inspector for the American Bar Association's Accreditation Committee. Professor Miller's service affiliations have also included the Law School and Mission Council, the American Law Deans Association, the Idaho Law Foundation, and the American Inns of Court. Welcome to the program, Professor Miller. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you for being here. So on this program, I don't think we have to make an introduction to Prop 13. Uh, We're here in California, at least I am, and uh, yeah, it's something that everyone focused on the issues knows about. Uh, Look it up yourself at your own leisure. This is a bit heady if you know nothing going into it. Uh, But one thing we haven't really talked about in any depth was the fact that in uh, a little over uh, two and a half decades ago, give or take, uh, it went to the Supreme Court. Uh, The case was Nordlinger versus Hahn. And in an eight-to-one decision, uh, Prop 13 was upheld uh, by the Supreme Court. Uh, and in 1993, there was a uh, paper uh, which uh, is called Rationalizing Injustice, the Supreme Court and the Property Tax, written by uh, Professor Miller. Uh, so I guess the first question is, uh, what led you to kind of you know, pay attention to this and, and decide to you know, kind of make a commentary on this, on this case? Well, to me, uh, this was a, a striking example of the, of the Supreme Court really missing the boat. Uh, the, uh, the the system of taxation that Proposition uh, 13 imposed is, to my mind, so irrational and so basically unfair that I just could not get my head around how the court could feel that was uh, it had a rational basis. Uh, I'm not a constitutional scholar, and I've talked to a number of my friends who are constitutional scholars, and and, and their perspective was different than mine in general, although there are uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, but I felt like that that difference uh, in their views and mine flowed from their uh, essential ignorance of uh, how we measure fairness in a taxing system. And uh, if you understand that that principle of of tax fairness, you would see that this is uh, just a fundamentally irrational taxing scheme. So to break down uh, to you know what this came to in the Supreme Court, it was challenged under the Equal Protection Clause, the Fourteenth Amendment, and yes. in in the way that tiered scrutiny has worked uh, in the Supreme Court, I guess we should talk more about that because uh, many to most people listening to this may not know uh, you know how this how this works. But uh, there's different tiers of scrutiny. Strict scrutiny right. uh, is when a state has a compelling interest. Is the uh, uh, I, I, I guess it, it invites uh, basically the burden of proof to lie upon the state. Uh, meanwhile, taxes in general tend to only fall under the scrutiny of rational basis. Uh, the Supreme Court has taken the idea that even a bad tax, even an unfair tax, uh, has tended not to really be uh, their 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 problem. Um, and that's something that you in this uh, in this paper and, and actually other papers you've written have have uh, criticized the fact that uh, in your view a tax can be so irrational that it violates all principles of, of equity and fairness, uh, that it should not even pass the rational basis test. Yes, I think that uh, any tax uh, uh, has the possibility for being irrational at, at, at some, to some degree, and, and probably all of them are. But the, but the difference with Proposition 13 uh, is that it's, uh, it's irrational at its very core. Uh, let me uh, back up just for a second and note that uh, traditionally we've called property taxes ad valorem taxes. Uh, that's from the Latin meaning according to value. And so the fundamental base of a property tax has been the value of the underlying property. Uh, 
And that has a certain rationality in that uh, you're treating similarly situated people the same way. If you own property that has the same value as someone else, you pay the same amount of tax. Uh, what Proposition 13 did to that was to instead choose a different number, a number that has that really becomes uh, more and more uh, disconnected from the immediate reality as time passes, because it uses the number of acquisition cost as the tax base, and that number remains fixed over time, even as the property itself uh, becomes worth, generally speaking, more. And what that results in is a system in which people living in uh, virtually identical properties of identical value may pay dramatically different rates of tax. Uh, and that, that that is just fundamentally unfair. So you're talking about the sales price versus the actual economic value of the property in That's question. Right. That's right. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Proposition 13 had several different components. And the components that were, uh, you might say, were rational, were used by the Supreme Court in its decision to uphold the parts of Proposition that are 13 that are quite irrational. And let me explain. Uh, during the 70s, uh, 1970s, property values went up very rapidly in California, which was causing uh, the, the uh, tax bills to go up rather dramatically as well, because the tax was computed with, by reference uh, of, by applying a rate uh, to the base, the base being the fair market value of the property. Well, uh, Proposition 13, in part, was simply a tax freeze because what it said uh, in part was to say that the tax rate can be no higher than 1%. And at that time, the uh, 1% of the presently assessed value of the homes and other real estate. The, uh, the present rate was over 2% for most people in California. So uh, a big piece of Proposition 13, as originally enacted, was simply a very large tax cut. But grafted onto that was a provision that said, first of all, the rate cannot go up. So it was also a tax freeze in that sense, or a rate freeze at least. And then the third piece was to say, and by the way, we're going to use this new base uh, acquisition cost as the base for the tax from here on which means that, uh, that the existing homeowners and uh, uh, were going to get a benefit as time passed because although their uh, values might go up, their tax bill could not go up. And at the same time, uh, the system would allow revenues to grow by shifting more and more of the costs of government onto newcomers. And so, um, these different components, a tax cut, a rate freeze, and a uh, shift in the base were all laced together. And uh, one of the things that confused, I think, the Supreme Court was that it, it tried to uh, justify the, the change in the base by reference to these other components, which were really unrelated. So, so to satisfy the rational basis, essentially they only need a you know a reason that is at least it, it passes muster as not being in, you know entirely disingenuous. And and the reason they they said is this offers uh, stability uh, for local powers to allow stability in the population. Sure, that's that's considered a reasonable basis, uh, and it doesn't matter if you know by what means they affect this. Uh, in the case of Prop 13, uh, it was called at the time a revolt of the haves insofar as it, it mm -hmm. basically was supported by higher income uh, white males uh, and people who already owned uh, property. They voted in their own self-interest and, as you said, in some respects against the self-interest of persons, many of whom, such as young people and future residents, had no vote. Which in the that's right. Yeah. So in the eyes of of you know the uh, uh, equal protection, uh, you you could say that the fact is uh, even if this is uh, a naked naked interest, uh, uh, excuse me, a naked preference, 
as you uh, mm-hmm. quote uh, uh, Cass Sunstein's uh, idea of something that has no basis in principles of fairness. It is just basically a uh, you know a grab for for more by some uh, some uh, special interest. Uh, you know this even if you were to say that this kind of plurality system is is advised, the Supreme Court is supposed to protect people who you know don't really have a standing to to really uh, to to say we can't even fight because we're not born yet, for instance. And in this case, yeah. uh, we're the people paying. I was I was born after 1978, uh, and yet I feel the consequences of Prop 13. Uh, so this is supposed to be, in I guess in some legal eyes, the balancing act that the Supreme Court is supposed to make, in which they did not. I, I uh, agree with you. I, I think that essentially the Supreme Court uh, abdicated its role as the protector of the minority in this particular case, or the, the protector of the uh, of the voiceless, uh, because uh, this, uh, as as I've described, the way this taxing scheme was set up, everyone who was voting at the time, who was a, already a homeowner, was basically voting for their own immediate self-interest, and 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 this and at the same time voting against the self-interest of future uh, homeowners and future uh, voters, uh, you might say. And so it was very much a scheme that was was not designed to, uh, you know, fairly represent future interests. It was, it was uh, the immediate interests of, of the immediate voters, the immediate homeowners that was being represented here. And that's an area where the court is uniquely situated and suited to try to protect uh, the overall structure of society, in my opinion. And uh, I think it failed to do so. So well, one thing you address is the idea, is this you know, kind of the degree uh, into which this was affected, or was it you know, uh, basically the entire kind? Uh, because in your, you, you make the initial, what if instead of locking down a low rate, because right now people who've had a home since 1978 pay you know, a you know a very very small percentage uh, based on market rate. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, instead, let's say that they said we should pay no property taxes, but everyone in the future should pay some property taxes. Uh, you say that this would be more likely to fail, even though it's essentially the same thing of saying we pay zero percent on all accrued value to our land values as time goes on. Do you think that would be the case that that would actually violate uh, what a rationally bad tax would be? Uh, well, yes, I I do. Uh... I mean, if you think about it, every tax exists uh, with a rate and a base. And the the ultimate tax liability is a function of applying that rate to the base. If you, uh, if you make either element discriminatory, that is the rate or the base, then the tax itself becomes discriminatory. And so, for example, Proposition 13 could have been structured to say, well, those of us who, who are uh, – bought our homes in 1978 will pay at a rate of 1%. And those of us who pay and who buy a home in 1979 will pay at the rate of 2%. That, that would be a more directly openly discriminatory scheme than proposition 13, but it uh, would be, uh, it would achieve similar results. And I think that had that been structured that way, uh, with, that is the rate being discriminatory rather than the base being discriminatory, the Supreme Court would have been uh, had an easier time striking it down. Do you think that that was intelligently and methodically thought out before the fact, and you might say a somewhat malicious way to thinly veil raw political power of a majority uh, group? over um, a less powerful minority, or was it just happenstance that uh, that's the way it was structured? Do you think they did the minimum that that they had to do to get it passed? Um, ver- no, I think it was I think it was a very deliberately developed scheme to uh, protect the interests of uh, those presently who owned homes. Uh, and there are a number of other of elements that demonstrate that. For example, um, Proposition 13 also contains a provision that says if you give your home to your child or sell your home to your child, 
your child gets to keep your assessment. So in other words, it created a hereditary right to, uh, in a sense to a low property tax assessment. Uh, Justice Stevens and his dissent referred to it as uh, establishing a, cl- a class called the squires, uh, uh, kind of a reference to a more feudal system. Um, so it, the, uh, the overall structure of this scheme was very well thought out to appeal to the basest instincts of the present voters. Uh, because they were going to benefit on multiple levels, and the only people really being hurt, <laughs> in a sense, were future homeowners, uh, who many of whom may not have been alive or, or certainly may not have been voters at that time. You could also say that all of the people who had to make up the tax revenue not uh, acquired through uh, a higher property tax on such owners – um, are heard as well. So, for instance, yeah. uh, you know, sales tax is paid by poor people when they uh, go and buy food, and they pay at the same rate as rich people. Um, so, more revenue is coming f- from those that don't own property than from those who do. So, that, that's another way. This is uh, perhaps you might say discriminatory or regressive. Well. Yes, it certainly uh, ha- had some significant potential for making the property tax a less important uh, source of revenue and thus shifting the, the tax base or uh, the tax revenues of the government to other forms of taxation, which could be more, uh, uh, those other forms could be more regressive or more progressive. Uh, to the extent that you shift to the sales tax, and that's a, that's a fairly regressive tax. There is a, an inherent regressivity in Proposition 13 as well because uh, it discriminates in favor of wealthier individuals uh, over time as well. And so uh, think of it this way. Suppose that two people buy houses the same year and one of them pay, and they both pay a million dollars for their homes, you know, that, which is not unrealistic, I suppose, in California these days. Uh, down the road, those homes might appreciate at different rates. And let's say one triples in value and one doubles in value. So the one who now owns a home that's worth $3 million is going to pay the same tax as the person who owns a home worth $2 million. So the wealthier of the two has benefited the most from Proposition 13. And, so it's uh, unfair it, even to the people who are benefiting in relative terms. So if yes, your property goes it, up by a huge amount, uh, you get an even bigger tax break than somebody whose property only went up by a relatively smaller amount. Yes, and and in the course of it, discriminating in favor of the wealthier person. You can see that similarly if two people buying homes in the same year uh, pay, let's say one uh, buys a home worth 100000 and another buys a home worth a million, and then let's say both homes double in value. Well, the one who paid 100000 is uh, benefiting, in a sense, because they, they would, other, under a normal tax, property tax system, they would pay uh, based on a value of 200000 now, and they're still being taxed uh, based on a value or a cost of 100000 The person whose home originally cost a million, that is also simply doubled in value, is now... Uh, assessed on a million-dollar value for a home that's worth a million dollars more than that. So they're saving, in relative terms, a tremendously greater amount of property taxes than the person uh, who uh, who bought in the same year they did. So again, it discriminates in favor of the wealthier individual. So to take a look at the, the big picture, uh, something you talk about is the different principles of what makes for a rational tax based upon normative ideas of, of equity. Uh, horizontal equity is, uh, is, is a big one. Uh, this, is, yes. this is the idea that people who are the same in different respects that are uh, significant are treated the same. Uh, this is a quote by Joseph yes. Stiglitz. So basic is the notion of horizontal equity that is incorporated in the Constitution of the United States as the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, yes, and that, that's what we pretty much thought until uh, Nordinger or Behan, at least, is that, that the Equal Protection plot, cra- 
cause essentially incorporated the the concept of horizontal equity, uh, uh, at least broadly speaking. So that, that's that's one of the uh, principles. Another principle is vertical equity, and this uh, is yes. more. It seems to map onto progressivity. The idea that when mm-hmm. you have more, and in some ways you benefit more from public goods, you should you should pay more to make up for it. And as we see in Prop Thirteen, we have essentially the opposite of vertical equity. Uh, the, the more you have, mm-hmm. the less you pay in. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean. The uh, the concept of progressivity is important in the in the the, the idea of vertical equity. That is that uh, that as you have more uh, resources, you should pay at a higher rate of tax as well as a, a higher total amount of tax. It's also based on the idea that uh, as we, as people have more disposable income, in particular. Uh, each dollar becomes uh, less valuable to them than the last one. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as a diminishing margin of utility of uh, money. Um, but all of these, both of these concepts, horizontal equity and uh, vertical equity, uh, are embodiments of a, a kind of a very fundamental tax principle, which is that taxes should be based uh, on a person's ability to pay. And uh, in a system like this, where you're really not looking at the degree of wealth a person has, but simply uh, a historic number that may have nothing to do with their present financial situation, that ability to pay concept has really com- uh, completely fallen by the wayside. And, and I guess to, to, to wrap up the idea of the principles, a third principle, you say even people who uh, throw some doubt on the normative uh, you know, basis for horizontal and vertical equity would still look at efficiency. And the efficiency of Prop 13 is abhorrent. Uh, it, it does not allocate land to people well. It locks people into their homes and basically keeps newcomers uh, out of the ability to uh, be allocated with, into a, a city. So as far as all th- yeah. three of these principles, it fails all three terribly. So that the, the basic uh, thrust of this is it there is no rational basis for this being a tax uh, scheme. Well, the yeah, the rationality here was uh, the the people who voted for it were uh, voting for their own immediate self-interest, uh, and that's what where the court should have been stepping in to be looking out for future generations and for future homeowners. You know, there 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 are some other twists to Proposition Thirteen that are interesting, but the. The point you make about the lock-in effect, that is that because you once you buy and you get that low assessment, you're not going to be inclined to sell and buy again because you, uh, you're going to uh, – your ta- property tax assessment is going to jump. Uh, that, that is a significant factor in pointing out the irrationality of the tax because generally speaking in our society, we actually try to foster mobility of people. We we try to, in our tax system and in other ways, we try to foster people's ability to move from one place to another in order to, uh, you know, take a new job or to uh, make some other change in life. And Proposition 13 really has a lock-in effect, causing people to stay in the same home, even when they might want to move. It does have one discriminatory, again, sort of discriminatory feature that uh, again, favors, uh, you might say, the well-to-do or at least the, the long-term homeowner. And that is that after age 55, you can sell your home and keep your old assessment if you buy a new home. Uh, and so that does relieve the lock-in effect to some effect, uh, extent, but it also, as you can see, again, discriminates and, and kind of in favor of those people who already have uh, accumulated wealth. To, to jump in on just a technical f- uh, feature of that pr- uh, provision, uh, that provision only allows you to buy and sell within the same county, as I understand, and it has to be less than, than the market rate has to match the market rate of the original that you bought at, which if you are hmm. selling a $3 million house in Palo Alto and you can buy within the same county, but you must find a house that sells for $120,000, it's just not going to happen. So it, it, that's a moot point mm. in practice, is what I understand. Uh, oh, Although, I see. Yeah. 
Uh, so I, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's kind of a thing. It's it's a policy that makes sense. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it just just that small uh-huh. issue. Uh, something that was brought up during the uh, the case. So actually, here's something you quote. Uh, this is by a senator. Don't text you. Don't text me. Text that fellow behind the tree. Uh, you know, there's no need for either of us to be harmed. Let's have someone else have the burden placed on them. Uh, this was brought up by John Paul Stevens during the uh, court case, and I'll quote from it. And that choice has inevitably placed a burden on a different group of people. Uh, actually, I'm going to actually cut in some of the audio, so I'm going to play this. Uh, and then the uh, 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 Rex E. Lee, who is defending Prop 13 here, uh, says, But Justice Stevens, if the new test is, does it place a different burden on some other people? And the Equal Protection Clause is going to cut a swat through our federal and state taxation laws that's going to make Sherman's march through Georgia look like a Sunday picnic. Uh, do you think that kind of apocalyptic scenario of saying that if this is irrational, essentially all of our taxes are irrational, do you think that is uh, valid or do you think that's an overstatement? Oh, no, that's a gross overstatement. Um, you know, something that we should point out about uh, the way that the problems that California was experiencing that led to Proposition 13 are problems that have occurred uh, all over the country at one time or another. That is of, of uh, property uh, assessments, uh, values going up rapidly and creating higher tax bills. And uh, what other states and local government units have done, uh, widely used system, is to uh, basically put into the law a provision that says, as assessments go up, rates must go down so that revenues can only grow at a certain measured amount, usually of quite a small amount, say one or 2% a year. So in effect, you can create a non-discriminatory system that also doesn't let property taxes run wild. You just, as the, as the uh, valuations go up, you cause the rates to go down by a commensurate amount to keep uh, the revenues more or less re- level with some inflationary increases. I mean, you, you mentioned that that was in place in Kentucky in the 70s, and actually the, the Prop 13 equivalent in Oregon that was been put in place in the last few decades uh, does something somewhat similar in that the assessment is kept low, but it's kept low even if it's resold. So I, it certainly has its own issues, but you certainly can't put the discriminatory class of, of privileged uh, people uh, as a criticism. So it's it's true that there's alternatives, and something rejected by the court is the idea that you know California doesn't have to pick uh, the best way to address this, they just need to pick one way. And that was that was the defense they did. Uh, and mm-hmm. to, to quote uh, Scalia, and I'm going to you know, cut this in too. We, we have this new tax system. It's rough and ready. It's not perfect, but close it, enough it, for government work. It largely depends. <laughs> it, it. Laughter. Mm. Uh, and is it close enough? Because uh, it, it really... Uh, is not a small issue of of inefficiency and inequity in, in California. It has it was a big issue then, and in 2017, it's only gotten worse and worse. So I, I guess yeah, I yeah I think that that would be one interesting way in which this issue might be brought back to the court system again. Would would be through the gathering of of good data on just how disparate. Uh, the tax treatment is of one uh, individual as compared with another who are similar, otherwise similarly situated. Uh, when Proposition 13 was being decided, uh, or when Nordlinger was being decided, they the court used this example. There was a Malibu home worth $2.1 million that was being assessed at the same level as Stephanie Nordlinger's home, which was a uh, was worth $150,000 or something like that um, because they were both purchased uh, for $150,000 at the time they were acquired. And so you had a home uh, that was more than 10 times more valuable than hers being, uh, and the, uh, the property owner paying the same level of tax. Well, probably uh, you could find millions of examples of that now throughout California, uh, and uh, so I would I would think there the the potential for demonstrating the unfairness of the tax scheme uh, should be would be 
uh, huge at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was said that uh, you know, is there not a middle class, not the Malibu mansions, and not this the small things? Uh, what about the the middle? Uh, and it was it was said there are no people in the middle, <laughs> and it's only became mm-hmm. more that case. There are million dollar homes, and there are renters who can't dream of having a home, and no one in between. Uh, and that's the effect mm-hmm. of the processes this has created. Yeah, and these well, it's probably not only Proposition Thirteen that has led to that that uh, circumstance, but it certainly is a contributing factor, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's people who are, I guess, most you know involved in the housing circles around here certainly treat it as the biggest grill in the room. Uh, it certainly can't hold mm-hmm. all the responsibility. Uh, to take a sideline, uh, so something that was brought up in this uh, is something that has come to our attention in, in the past and is, uh, I guess, a certain hobby horse of ours, the Alaska oil dividend. Uh, the Alaska oil dividend, everyone in the state equally gets the proceeds of a certain uh, amount accrued mm-hmm. from a amount of natural resources that build a certain amount of equity. Uh, and in this case, uh, I guess we always thought, oh, isn't this nice that they just were fair to everybody? Uh, and we should have known, of course, they weren't. They originally gave old timers, people who are in the state longer, more oil revenues and people who are newer will get less. Uh, this was brought to the Supreme Court, Zobel versus uh, Williams uh, in 1982. And they used the Equal Protection Clause to say uh, this is not a constitutional way to divvy it up. Uh, you must actually uh, divvy it up to everyone equally. And when Nordlinger went to the, the case, they tried to get this under the same scrutiny, which is to say, uh, yeah, newcomers are not treated as well here. Uh, this is uh, basically it, it, it discriminates against the right to travel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, do you have anything to say about the kind of the original uh, yeah, interpretation of the right to travel for Alaska and how this was interpreted here? Well, uh, as you probably recall, that in Nordlinger, the Supreme Court declined to address the right to travel issue on the basis that Stephanie Nordlinger was had not moved to California from uh, out of state. She had resided in, in Los Angeles before she acquired her home. And so that issue is still sitting out there. In theory, one could bring a new case uh, resting solely on the right to travel uh, issue. But uh, what I was try- the point I was trying to make earlier is that I, I think if you wanted to try to relitigate uh, Nordlinger v. Hahn, you would, uh, you would want to also gather data about just the desperate uh, uh, impact, uh, the way in which similarly situated people are t- being treated differently all across the state on a, on a massive scale. But certainly that right to travel issue is still out there and should be, uh, uh, should be addressed at some point. A, uh, I was going to make, I think the right to travel issue arises out of the privileges and immunities clause of the U.S. Constitution. And you know, I don't know that that argument has uh, been developed uh, in many other cases. So I, I don't know how powerful an, an argument that would be. But you mentioned in the 1993 paper that because it was thrown out on the grounds that uh, Stephanie Nordlinger was only moving within the state, someone moving from out of the state within the state would have the uh, right to travel uh, justification for the equal protection. I mean, for basically taking this down. Uh, And uh, and it seemed to kind of, okay. did this happen? And it appears to be, uh, I know none of, and it sounds like you know none of, a challenge under this basis. Uh, no, it certainly has not uh, uh, made it to the U.S. Supreme Court if there was such a challenge. Uh, uh, and I, I don't, I'm not aware that there has been. Yeah. So that issue, as far as I'm aware, is still out there and could be litigated. Uh, uh, of course, getting the Supreme Court to hear another challenge to Proposition 13 might be difficult. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's tough to know exactly if something was ever tried and then uh, lower courts would have just, you know, uh, shot it down there and then. Uh, but it sounds that, yeah, it sounds very surprising that this obvious grounds has never been tried in, in decades. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know yeah. exactly what the probability is for someone to mount that today. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the constitutional scholars would generally tell you that uh, you know that it's very difficult to win a rational basis scrutiny test uh, case because uh, the level of scrutiny tends to be very low, 
as you've already alluded to earlier on. And uh, and you add to that that the, the Supreme Court is generally reluctant to reverse its own precedents. And so getting them to hear uh, a case that they've decided once a second time and reconsider their opinion is not easily done. Uh, it seems to me, though, that uh, in this particular case, what one thing that argues in favor of it, though, is as I pointed out, that, as we've discussed, this is a, a system of taxation that it becomes increasingly discriminatory with the passage of time. Uh, it becomes increasingly harsh in its consequences. Uh, and uh, so that certainly uh, uh, argues in favor of revisiting it and reconsidering it. Something else to note about Proposition 13, by the way, is that it contained within it a, its own provision to, to lock it in, you might say. Uh, Proposition 13 was passed by a majority vote, uh, uh, voter initiative. It contained within it a provision that required a two-thirds majority, uh, supermajority, we might say, to, to alter it thereafter. So it was kind of like they were pulling up the ladder uh, on the way in uh, by uh, locking in uh, these pernicious effects. Drawbridge residents, they call them. If a group of people wanted to take a shot at challenging Proposition 13, what do you think would be their best shot at doing so? Um, if you were challenged with the task of leading such a campaign, what would you focus uh, well, on given limited resources? I, the things I would look at would be to uh, see what, what public statistics there are available that would really help you highlight the, the discriminatory treatment. I would certainly also try to uh, see if, it, if, if the discriminatory impact was uh, um, uh, related to such things as racial groups. Because as you know, uh, uh, there is a higher level of constitutional scrutiny for laws that, uh, that are discriminatory based on race or, or uh, sex or uh, other uh, suspect classifications. And so to the extent that you can show that this is really discriminatory in its impact with respect to uh, racial minorities, for example, that might be a, a further reason for the court to examine the case and to examine it uh, with a, a stricter level of scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, this it perpetuated to a large extent redlining and other discriminatory racial policies of, of decades previous. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it has made sure that these are structurally locked in to uh, to further them. And it, it sounds like that would be a, a case. Uh, strict scrutiny. But certainly reinforced. Uh, certainly uh, reinforced the status quo, and so those people who were already advantaged were further advantaged, and uh, so uh, latecomers, uh, which might include minorities who were uh, may have had more difficulty, as you point out, in in buying homes in the past and in the present, in terms of being able to take, obtain a financing, for example. Uh, those those folks are coming into a system that is uh, somewhat stacked against them. Yeah, I mean, so strict scrutiny. Uh, you talk about protected classes. Yeah, that does not protect newcomers. Newcomers are not a protected class, and you know, young people in that sense are not a protected class. But it mm -hmm. does highly correlate with these. Uh, but I guess. Yes. Another grounds for scrutiny, and this is something just talking about uh, a bad tax and who does it affect, uh, something Scalia brought up over and over again. It's what if you have a tax on milk? Is this discriminatory towards milk drinkers versus non-milk drinkers? A, a, a jurisdiction chooses to tax milk. It doesn't have taxes on other kinds of food, but it chooses to tax milk. Is that bad? I said there was rationally because they decided they want to tax milk. I can understand milk rest. drinkers making this same argument, you know, saying these people over here are drinking wine, uh, you know, it's just flowing like water, and we can't, uh, a, a, a jurisdiction chooses to tax milk. It doesn't have taxes on other kinds of food, but it chooses to tax milk. Is that bad? And it, it seems to kind of say, oh, you know, everything is going to have uh, some sort of effect one way or another, 
But when you talk about land and housing, this seems like such a fundamental part of the cost of, of living that everyone pays. It sounds facetious in my mind to say that this is just something some people choose to consume and other people don't, like milk. Yeah, not everyone uh, drinks milk, but everyone needs a home. So I, mean, I guess yeah. as far as inviting strict, strict scrutiny on, on housing, uh, it sounds almost – it sounds sort of strange that this isn't considered a, a fundamental uh, you know, right in that sense that, that strict scrutiny would, would be able to, to touch on. Well, to, to my mind, uh, the, the way I would respond to Justice Clear on that particular point would be to, to bring the focus back to the, the centrality of the base, uh, of the tax base, to the fairness of a tax. I mean, you can tinker around the edges of taxes, and, and Congress does all the time in ways that some of us might think are fair or unfair. But when you make the very core of the tax, the very central feature of the tax, unfair, uh, there's really no amount of tinkering that's, <laughs> that's going to uh, uh, fix that. Uh, and so I think that uh, his analogy is just a weak one. You know, the, the something, uh, as you point out, something that is sort of a discretionary uh, consumption item is in no way similar to something uh, that is as fundamental as, as having a roof over your head. And uh, the whole tax itself is about property. Uh, and as I say, the, the original name of the property tax is ad valorem, at, according to value. And when you when you take uh, the fair market value uh, out of the equation, you've really eviscerated the the whole logic of the tax. Well, that's an argument against one of the policies we advocate for on the show, the land value tax. Uh, people will often say, well, you, you know, it might have implementation problems there. There could be this and that issue that um, mm -hmm. causes these side issues. And you know, the answer well, to that always, is yeah. it's better to do uh, the right tax slightly wrong than to do the wrong tax perfectly. Uh, that could be. Yes, I agree. Uh, I mean, every tax has its own complexities and problems. And the property tax certainly has many issues. It doesn't correlate very well to liquidity, for example, because the person may own a lot of land and yet not have the cash with which to pay a, an immediate tax bill. Uh, although, you know, what we find historically is that, is that uh, income does tend to correlate with uh, wealth, uh, land wealth, but uh, it doesn't necessarily have to in any given case. There are all kinds of problems with the property tax uh, that would cause one to say, you know, it, we, maybe we would be better off to focus more on income taxes and consumption taxes as a way to fund government. But if we're going to have a property tax, it ought to be constructed around a base that is at least um, has some modicum of fairness associated with it. And to my mind, that uh, the acquisition costs uh, base is uh, uh, there is there simply is no uh, modicum of fairness there. The property tax, it's a weird tax in that uh, at least many of us feel it's a mixture of the best tax and the worst tax. Uh, it's a it's a mm. it's a tax against land. And you mentioned that the property taxes in a footnote of the paper came into being in medieval Europe as a tax on land and the chattels used in agriculture. And it's mm -hmm. tended to be moved to basically real property, not movable, but also to an extent movable property. Uh, and, yeah. And the improvements on you know certain structures that can seem to be the worst tax because hey you know why would you not want improvements in your life uh, based on like Ramsey pricing and other economic senses that part is considered bad whereas the land part is considered at least in, you know uh, some metrics very efficient so it's a it's a strange tax that combines two very disparate things for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean it's a tax with many challenges. Uh, for example. Uh, uh, if you uh, if you tax primarily real property, then the people who are, who put most of their wealth into uh, say stocks and bonds are really avoiding the tax, and you're and so in a sense it becomes a a a, a, a tax disproportionately 
uh, on landowners that uh, anomaly is on wealth. Uh, another big problem is that it doesn't really take into account uh, debt. And so some people might own a piece of real estate with a large mortgage and uh, their, their tax, uh, tax base would normally be fair market value. Uh, so you would be taxing them on, on the value of property that they, in which they have actually very little equity. So there are all kinds of conceptual uh, and challenge, uh, practical challenges with the property tax. But uh, to me, the, uh, the, the difference with, with the acquisition cost base that, the, uh, uh, that Proposition 13 created was that it created a base that, that really is almost like a, a number that comes out of the sky after a while. Because what relationship does what a property was worth in 1978 have to do with the tax liability computed in uh, 2017? Uh, really, almost none. And yet that's the, the system that has been created. To quote you in your own paper, you say that uh, this has shifted the, uh, the, the tax burden uh, on an arbitrary basis of, I was here first. This is sort of an exercise in naked preference equal protection clause was enacted to prevent. Uh, I, I got there first. Uh, we see this in all sorts of, of, of schemes. We see this in property rights in water in the western United States. We see this, of course, in, uh, in land acquisition. Uh, and yeah, it's, it, it really tends to be an arbitrary basis that we take for granted and uh, seems to violate well, the ideas of horizontal equity and, and so much more. I know uh, Jake has something he wants to say here. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you were worried to some degree about the progressivity of, of something like a land value tax. But if you look at the fact that land in the city center is exponentially more valuable than anything um, in the suburbs or in the you know more outlying areas, I, I think you would find that um, people that owned property outside of those urban cores would pay exponentially uh, less, um, and they would probably pay mm -hmm. absolutely less than uh, they do now. Maybe not in California, where there's so much distortion as a result of Prop 13. Um, and then, and then you mentioned something else about uh, it causing people to put more money in stocks and bonds. And I actually think this would be a very good thing because uh, investing in stocks and bonds actually helps to allocate capital where it needs to go. But when you, for example, just own a vacant lot, uh, that allocation of, of, of money to that investment isn't actually doing anyone any good. It's not actually producing anything. Um, mm -hmm. So... Well, to, that, certainly that to the extent that, yeah, to the extent that Proposition 13 discourages the property from changing hands, uh, it it's certainly uh, an argument. There's certainly an argument there that it's economically inefficient as well. In addition to these other uh, problems, to look at uh, possible, you know consequences of, you know, what if this was retried again? People in California tend to say the fact of, we have you know, made such a mess of things with Prop 13 and other policies that if it was overturned now, it would be chaos. Uh, ah. And I guess, is, is, that, is that something the Supreme Court would ever, like, has historically shied away from, is the idea that because now people have this kind of, you could say, uh, you know, uh, arbitrary privilege, you can't take away that privilege mm -hmm. now uh, because it would lead to chaos and just suddenly, you know, <laughs> you know, just everything would be topsy-turvy. Is, is that something uh, that the Supreme Court is generally is a concern to them? Well, uh, there, there might be occasions on which uh, disruption to the present order would, would serve as the basis for saying we're not going to change things. But here, when the present order is so fundamentally flawed, I think what you would much more uh, uh, the court would be more likely to do is to say, well, here is the problem. This problem uh, is uh, is unconstitutional, and uh, the legislature now needs to examine it and come up with a constitutional solution. And uh, so, in other words, uh, there would still be the opportunity to to uh, transition to something fairer. 
And for, as I've mentioned earlier, what most states have done with this problem of uh, rapidly increasing property values is they simply enact what we call a compensating tax rate, uh, which, uh, which goes down as, as assessments go up. And so if by going out and reassessing all the property in California and crea- uh, creating a new tax base based on fair market value, the the system that is employed throughout the rest of the country. Uh, You could also, at that point, enact a tax rate that would cause the overall revenues not to increase significantly, basically be revenue neutral. It would just more fairly apportion the tax cost, the present tax cost, among the present population. And certainly there would be some people whose tax bills would go up dramatically, but only because they've been getting such a sweet deal for so long. Uh, One other thing you could do to make it fair, not just between the uh, current owners and people who want to become owners, but you could also make it fair for people that don't own land by combining this with a UBI or citizen's dividend. And instead of actually uh, decreasing the tax rate, you could uh, basically just, you know, either give people the money or say, all right, we're applying um, just this excess revenue uh, over and above the uh, the neutrality to your tax bill, so that uh, you know whatever averages out as everyone's dividend, that will just be a decrease in your in your property bill, and that would largely achieve the same. I think uh, valuable things that you're talking about, it'd but be a standard deduction, uh, standard deduction for your for your property tax and sorts. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I would have to look at that uh, more closely before I could uh, comment. But uh, you know, my own inclination would be to think that uh, fixing the base so that it is fair is uh, is a separate issue from then determining how much revenue do we want from this particular tax What's and. That? And that was the problem with Nordlinger v. Hahn, in my opinion. The, the reason the court got it wrong was that it it uh, looked at the it used the tax freeze sort of components of Proposition 13 to justify its discriminatory components. And uh, if it had separated those out, it would have had a much harder time really justifying its position. Uh, what one technical issue, which is actually a pernicious but kind of thing to, that's invisible, is when you lock in uh, people into their homes, uh, it has a second-order effect. You have less of a supply, and then the prices go up, which leads to their land wealth going higher and higher. So it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is kind of a, a strange case where these people, their homes are worth millions of dollars largely because of the tax system, uh, because it keeps the supply so artificially low, uh, which is one major issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, well, and, and that, that could well be. And there's one thing uh, Stephen says in this. Of course, there's another solution for those elderly people who found themselves their ten thousand dollar homes worth a million dollars. They could sell their homes and still live. Uh, and it seems like there's kind mm-hmm. of a, a false neutrality that the idea of someone being you know forced to make a million dollars selling their home is you know uh, you know the one basis you should judge a community power to affect a tax policy as. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I felt. Uh, as I was considering this, that that one of the things that people are overlooking is that these higher assessments, which were leading to bigger tax bills, were also reflective of greatly increased wealth uh, of one form or another. Uh, And so these people who, who are being protected, in a sense, are being protected because they are becoming wealthier. Uh, uh, in a sense, it's a, the system is really functioning to insulate the rich from the consequences of growing richer. Yeah, and they can still refinance. They can still draw upon that wealth. It, it, they are not yeah. only on paper. It is very real wealth that they can actually, uh, and that's one more alternative, they could roll up their tax schemes into their actual wealth and pay it off You know, at some later time if they actually have a wealth. They have, by definition, ability to pay. And they have an oh, easier yeah. time starting a business, uh, getting mm-hmm. getting loans because they can use their properties as collateral, whereas uh, renters don't have that option. Mm-hmm. Well, and and sim- simply put, also they have the benefit of living in a more valuable property 
which would, uh, if rented out, rent for more value, uh, for, uh, for, for a higher rate of rent. So in other words, uh, uh, if you judge it from the standpoint of saying, well, if they had to go out and rent a place, they would have to pay more money than they uh, uh, are currently paying, they are receiving an immediate value simply in terms of that imputed rental value. A tax on location is a tax on consumption. You're consuming that location when you choose to have that mm-hmm. property. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I will uh, quote, I guess, in full something you say after this. Uh, in saying this, I recognize that even a tax system which is sound in its fundamental principles would produce some unfairness in practice. This has always been true of the property tax. However, a tax system that is corrupt in its basic theory assures per- per- pervasive unfairness. This is a significant uh, difference. And yeah, yeah and I, I gotta say, this is it's. There's a lot of you know, this paper's a barn burn in a lot of ways, and I really love how you tie in the fundamental importance of horizontal equity uh, by saying just how fundamental it is to the normative standards of our culture. You mentioned the equal protection clause in the, in the Constitution. You mentioned the golden mm-hmm. rule. You mentioned Kant's categorical imperative, and you mentioned the Rawlsian veil of ignorance. These are all different ways of just saying what we do has always been considered it has to be fair and it seems yeah uh, and and people now in 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 california are feeling this idea of uh they call it neo-feudalism and it feels that Mm. way we have a protected class of squires Uh and it's it seems like isn't the supreme court isn't this their job it sounds it yeah and i can see why there's so much uh energy in this paper Uh yes uh you know when i uh i'm not a constitutional scholar by training i'm a tax professor and uh so i normally write about tax matters primarily and uh when i mentioned to a friend of mine that i was going to write this piece he uh, who was who is a constitutional scholar he said no i don't think it's worth your time but when i looked at at this i thought this is this is one of the gravest errors i've ever seen the supreme court make in a tax matter uh and that uh it, it I felt it needed to be addressed. And uh, it, I think you're right that this is one of those situations where uh, the very essence of our system of government is called into question when, when something as pernicious as this is allowed to stand. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, really punted on something that uh, I think was of fundamental importance. Uh, I, I think we're fortunate that by and large, Proposition 13 has not spread to other states. Uh, but you can see that there's a, a tremendous incentive for present voters to vote themselves a benefit here, saying, uh, you know, I already own my home. I want to fix my uh, tax liability for all time at a low level, and I'm not going to worry about what happens to anybody after me. And I can, if, if I'm wealthy enough, I can always pass my home on to my children, so they keep my lowest tax assessment. So uh, it really does have kind of a feudal component. That's that's been a, a underlying thread of of just basically the kind of uh, school of thought of Henry George is you don't make progress by trying to you know make a coalition of people who just work in their best interest. You apply to everybody an idea of fairness, and this is when you have mm-hmm. the golden rule. This is such a powerful thing that you can actually you yeah. can, you can move mountains when you have people look at just general ideas of fairness. And when politics says fairness doesn't matter, it's it's irrelevant how politics works. Uh, it, it, yeah, yeah. It's that's. I think that's why it certainly uh, uh, resonates with with uh, with us. Certainly. Yes. Well, it, it is a to me. It was just a stunning decision because it it uh, as I noted the article and as you kind of pointed out already, uh, the the notion of treating others as you would treat themselves, uh, uh, as you would have them treat you, is uh, an idea that crosses almost every major culture in in the world and has for centuries. You know, it's Confucius, it's uh, Aristotle, it's the Bible. Uh, all say these uh, this same basic uh, message that we should treat others as we would uh, have them treat us. And to say that I'm going to, uh, we're going to have a system where uh, one person gets to grab uh, who happens to be uh, that person who presently uh, is advantaged 
gets to permanently enshrine that advantage uh, while others pick up the slack uh, for them. Uh, That's just, to my mind, a corrupt system. Uh, Well, it looks like we're wrapping up on time. I just want to thank so much, uh, Professor Jack Miller, for making the time to talk about Norlinger versus Hahn here on the Henry George program today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Past episodes of the Henry George program are available on seethecat.org, where you can also check out the earthsharing.org newsletter and more. KZSU Stanford.